Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I'm on a train in Italy. I'm sitting in a compartment. My legs are crossed, my hoodie. It's unzipped, letting the countryside just roll by, letting the warm sun graze my closed eyes. Next stop, Norwalk. I said the train was in Italy. The next station is Lenovo. That's better, but that's a computer brand, not a place. Anyway, even with my eyes closed, I can feel the gaze of a handsome soldier on me. His powerful hands reach through space and grasp the insertion pin on my unzipped zipper and tucks it into the retainer box. Now his fingers pinch the slider, slowly pulling it up so that the molded teeth lock together. The next stop is Benvenuto. The zipper is now closed as high as my navel, but he keeps going, slowly tugging the pull tab of the slider body. I used to work for YKK, so I know a lot of zipper terms. The next stop is Barilla. Would it have been so hard to look up some names of Italian towns? Now the zipper teeth are slowly, slowly closing above my breasts, but the soldier, he doesn't speak. The next stop is Vermentino. The slider body reaches the top stop just at my collarbone. The soldier gets up and exits the train at Vermentino. Before I can follow him, he disappears. And I've just experienced a f***less sip. I am truly fulfilled. Except what kind of person goes around zipping up other people's sweatshirts? We'll find out today from Erica Jong. And now he owns 32 bamboo steamers because of his fear of frying. Colin McEnroe. Actually, Erica Jong may not know why people go around zipping up uh, each other's uh, sweatshirts. Um, but, uh, but she is here with us. Let me just sort of tell you what's going to be going on today. Uh, first of all, it's the uh, 40th anniversary of the uh, fear of flying. And that has been the occasion for many things, including it seems to have been the occasion last Sunday even for an entire New York Times book review uh, devoted to writing about sex and reading about sex, which is one part of uh, Fear of Flying. Also with us in studio, uh, Lucy Ferris. She's a writer in residence at Trinity College. She's the author most recently of The Lost Daughter um, and of a generation that may have been uh, significantly influenced and moved by the fear of flying. Um, so Erica Jong, first of all, welcome to our show. Thank you. And uh, we should say Erica Jong is in a, a studio somewhere. And we should also mention that she will be at the Westport Public Library on Wednesday of this week, October 9th. Westport Public Library. Go see her there. But, um, the, um, you know, reading The Fear of Flying now, I, I, expected to fe- I expected it to feel kind of dated and really kind of located in 1973. And, and it is to the extent that psychoanalysis costs $40 uh, and that you can also buy some really nice sandals on Madison Avenue for the same price. But in a lot of other ways, it isn't. I mean, it really kind of feels still a little bit more rebellious than, say, Eat, Pray, Love. It feels as though if it came out today, it it wouldn't especially feel 
like it was located in the past. So, um, so what about that? Does that mean that nothing really changed very much, or or am I just um, I don't know? Maybe I'm trapped in the past. I think things have not changed that much for women um, in the in the matters of sexuality. I mean, if you, if you look at Lena Dunham's girls, the girls are having less fun than the boys, and. It's a very honest show, but it has a very dark vision of male-female sexuality. So, and then if you read Fifty Shades of Blather, (laughs) um, an uncopy-edited work of fanfic, whatever that is, um, (laughs) that shows a woman accepting the position of the sex slave in exchange for money, Mm. essentially. And, you know, Anastasia keeps getting these goodies from her lover, and in return she signs a contract saying that she will be submissive. So she's submissive for laptops and convertibles and, and so on. Is that what we've come to? And, and and that that book, I mean, uh, we should say, Fear of Flying is sold, I think, 27 million copies worldwide. I think that book sold something like 80 million copies, which is very distressing. And I want to come back to that book, and I want to come back to girls, too, to, to, to Lena Dunham and girls. But, um, you know, maybe one thing that has changed uh, Lucy Ferris is the kind of writing that women do. Um, you're uh, an author of, what, about seven or eight books right now. And, and in some respects, maybe the thing that has changed is not – the relationship of women to sex, as Erica Jong just said, but the relationship of, of women to writing and the kind of writing they do. Well, I was, I think, 19 or 20 when I read Fear of Flying. And I know that, you know, I was, I was fantasizing not only about men, but about writing my first novel. And I had no idea, none, of how women could write about intimate relations. There seemed to be in every book authored by a woman that I knew a sort of, you know, fade out and then a lot of metaphors. There were a lot of books by men, and I had read them all, uh, that wrote uh, about intimate relations. I don't mean just sex. I mean, you know, body touching, desire. Uh, and there was no language. You felt as though this was a language that hadn't been invented yet. And then I read Fear of Flying, and I thought, oh, here's... Here's the language. You know, Erica Jung, I was reading uh, Fear of Flying uh, at the gym today, and I was thinking I probably wouldn't have to walk too many blocks before I could find somebody who would condemn it as pornography even today. But I, I mean, maybe that is one thing that has changed, though. I don't think it's easy for anybody but you maybe to remember the kind of pushback there was in 1973 for somebody writing as frankly about stripping as uh, you were. <laughs> Well, you know, I did get a lot of very diverse responses. You know, Paul Theroux called me a mammoth pudenda in the New Statesman. Um, The New York Times critic, who was somebody I had known and rejected, um, said it was just another whiny feminist novel. It was damned with faint praise. It was treated as if it were written by an alien, not a human being. And then along came John Updike quite late because Mr. Sean had not let him quote long passages (laughs) in The New Yorker, he later told me. 
And he anointed it as <clears throat> the female Holden Caulfield, the wise kid on the couch, riffing on life. And he really said that it was an important book. Then Henry Miller discovered it and called it the female Tropic of Cancer. And by then, no one could find the book because it was out of stock everywhere. <laughs> when the paperback came out in 74, in the fall of 74, it sold three million copies in about three months. It was the book everybody had heard of and no one could find. Whether that could happen today, I don't know. And one of the reasons it did happen was because paperback books were two bucks and they were in every drugstore. Mm. And they are no longer two bucks, even on the Internet. So people would take a chance with a book in those days. Two dollars was nothing to spend on an author you didn't know. And uh, it's been a mistake, I think, for publishers to up the prices of books so that paperbacks are almost as expensive as hardcovers now. But be that as it may, it was really possible during the paperback revolution for people to go into a drugstore and buy three or four books at once. Mm -hmm. And I think we miss that now because you can really take a chance on a new author when they're that cheap. Um, the, the other thing was that people weren't accustomed to hearing honest, the honest voice of women. Yes, there were many women writers before me, and great ones. Doris Lessing had published The Golden Notebook, mm -hmm. which is very intimate in its descriptions of women's feelings. Um, it was a book that was enormously important to me because it was about a woman who was a brain and a body. Mm. And I very much wanted to write about women who were bodies and brains, and the two intermingled, and how they affected each other. Um, Philip Roth had published Portnoy's Complaint, a book I adored, but it made me think, why aren't women doing this? John Updike had published Couples. I think that was 69 or 70. And again, I asked myself, why aren't women doing this? And there's another, another thing that was in the atmosphere, and I did write about this in the New York Times last Sunday. Suddenly, censorship was gone. Because of Barney Rossett, because of some very brave people who took on the censors, you could go into a bookstore and get Lolita or Lady Chatterley's Lover or Memoirs of a Woman of Pleasure, Fanny Hill, without going to the locked book room in your college library. And that made a huge difference. Suddenly, no censorship. And so you could read these classic books that previously had been collected by men in their private libraries, but which you couldn't get without going to Paris and, and uh, seeking out the Olympia Press editions. We're talking to Erica Jung right now, also to Lucy Ferris. Now, uh, I want to ask both of you about this, but I'm going to start with you, Lucy Ferris. You know, rereading Fear of Flying, the other thing that I'm struck by is, I mean, it, it gets talked about, obviously, in the way that we've been talking about it as a book that's very uh, frank uh, about sex. But 
it's also obviously a very funny book, and it's also, I think, more a book about wanting, too. It's a book about, I mean, we just made a bunch of analogies. I think another analogy is to, to Saul Bellows, Henderson, mm-hmm. you know, I want, I want, I want. I want, I want. I, want, I, want. <laughs> I <laughs> loved Henderson. In fact, it may well be my favorite Bellow mm-hmm. novel. I want, I have this voice inside me that keeps saying, I want, I want, I want. Love Henderson. And so I'm just. And, I, mean, I want to go over to Lucy Ferris for a second and just say, you know, as as a young reader wanting to be a writer, mm-hmm. was that part of it too? Just sort of, um, I don't know how vivid the memory of Fear of Flying is for you, but as a woman talking, I mean, she, she expresses a lot of it sexually, but it's really a book about wanting something other than what you've basically been handed so far. Right. Well, first of all, I want to say I think the book's a lot better than Tropic of Cancer, um, <laughs> and. <laughs> Secondly, I was thinking about Fear of Flying when there was an article out, I think in the Times, about three or four months ago, about their uh, attempts to develop the female Viagra, uh, or whatever you would call it. And the trick there was that they weren't trying to make a woman's anatomy do, do something different. They were trying to get to the heart of female desire and and where it goes and how you get it back and, and all that sort of thing. And I was thinking about fear of flying because, again, it was about that mental intimacy that I, I, you can't, I don't think we can talk about fear of flying without saying words you can't say on the radio. Well, that is, know, a, that's another thing that hasn't the, changed. The zipless you, bleep. Yeah. Uh, so the anyway. Zipless bleep. Yeah. Exactly. And, um, and th- I was still of a generation that had learned basically that men desired and women withheld. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, again, not it, when you find a language for something, I mean, you know, Adam knew this. Uh, when you find a language <laughs> for something, it suddenly exists. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't right. exist until you have the language for it. That was something I knew instinctively as a young writer. Uh, but I didn't know how to go about naming things for myself. So, Erica, you did us, you know, you opened the door in terms of writing. The other thing that was very important was that uh, the main character in Fear of Flying is a writer mm-hmm. herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I have to tell you that I had this fantasy that I would take these old words that Chaucer used and rehabilitate. Right. <laughs> I would, I loved Chaucer when I was in at Barnard. Adored Chaucer. And I really wanted to take words like C-U-N-T and make them great again. I didn't want them. I mean, these were words that came out of Middle English. And I wanted to rehabilitate them, take them off the bathroom wall. Because I felt that the words that existed for the female parts sounded so clinical and medical um, so you got to love I, pudenda. I, I mean, pudenda. Right. You know, pudenda well, well, no, is be, okay. It should be pudendum, actually. If we're getting Act, it, it should be pudendum. Exactly. Singular. Yes. Right. Anyway, I I felt that we had words like vagina, and God bless Eve Ensler for making it permissible to say that word. But still, it sounds a bit medical to me, rather than um, the quainta as Chaucer might have said. There's something tender in Quainta, and you can say that on the radio. But why not take back these words um, and make them beautiful again? So I had this fantasy as a word person 
that I was going to do that. And I was in love with Shakespeare's body. Um, Shakespeare described the eye that weeps most when best pleased. Hmm. Um, Shakespeare had all these terms for the female organ and desire. And I thought, as a scholar of English literature, I would bring them back. Well, huh. I didn't succeed. <laughs> no, that, that, in, that, in that realm, you, you didn't succeed. All right, we're going to take a very quick break. We'll come back with Mer- more of Erica Jong, more of Lucy Ferris after this. I only wanted what everyone wanted since bra started burning up ribs in the 60s. Favors are flying, faces are falling, and all I desire is to never be waiting if that's a crime. All right, we're back with Erica Jong. She is in the studios of WNPR New York, and uh, here in the studios of us uh, is Lucy Ferris. Uh, they are both writers. Uh, we're talking about the 40th, uh, or at least on the occasion of the 40th anniversary of Fear of Flying. There's so much stuff I want to cover, and I'm just worried we're not going to get to all of it. But, um, you know, uh, Erica Jong, it, it's sort of interesting that uh, obviously we're, we're talking about Fear of Flying partly because of this anniversary. Uh, but it's also kind of interesting that simultaneous with that, one of the cable channels is airing a drama called Masters of Sex, the story of Masters and Johnson. And watching what uh, as much of that as has aired so far, and we should say that Masters and Johnson do come up in the book Fear of Flying. They are mentioned in uh, The Fear of Flying. I, I feel as though in some ways the the jump from the world that those two people, Masters and Johnson, inhabited to the world of fear of flying is a longer and broader jump than the world than the jump from the world of Isadora Wing to, say, Carrie Bradshaw uh, on Sex in the City. That, you know, that in some ways, when you wrote that book, you, you had watched a, a certain kind of sexual revolution unfold already. Maybe it didn't unfold exactly the way you wanted it to, but you were, you, you had sort of lived through uh, you look at all the repression that's inherent in Masters and Johnson and you, uh, and the world that they're living in. It, it does seem like it had opened up a bit by 1973. Uh, people were experimenting with open marriage. Remember, there was a book called Open Marriage by the O'Neills. Um, people were experimenting with orgies, with all kinds of drugs that facilitated orgies. Timothy Leary was doing LSD up at Harvard. Um, It was a time. When I try to evoke that time, I was talking to the film director of Fear of Flying, and she said, tell me about that time, because she's somewhat younger than I am. And I said, it was a time of incredible hope. We thought everything was possible. And then, of course, came the reaction the Reagan years, the Bush years. And reaction always takes the form of putting down women, taking away birth control, taking away... They always say they're taking away abortion, but really what they want to do is take away birth control so that women can't control the number of children they have. And that will assure us that women will not enter the political process and change it. Remember, we're 52% of the population. We are not 50%. 
and we vote more, and we read more. And yet, if they can take away our ability to control our health, then they can take away our participation in the political process. And Lucy Ferris, in a way, I feel like this conversation never goes away, and that if I pick up the Atlantic on any given month, I'm either going to read that women can have it all or can't have it all, that there's going to be this very penetrating essay, usually written by a woman, explaining one or the other, that this conversation kind of never goes away. Well, again, I'm thinking about the the sort of what Fear of Flying opened up for us and how it 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 closed back in. I teach young women now, and uh, many of them are, quite frankly, terrified of having to face the kind of challenges that their, that their mothers faced. It seems too much to them. Their mothers are exhausted, and uh, it doesn't see, the payoff doesn't seem worth it to them. We have won the right to be eternally exhausted. Right. <laughs> and I, I used to say that in the 70s, and it's true. Yeah. They, what did they feel about their mother's example exactly? Well, I think they felt that this was not possible. In other words, they, what they don't see is where we failed, which was to revolutionize men, um, that you couldn't just revolutionize women and, and have it all, that there had to be a difference for men as well. All they see is that their mothers sort of flung themselves against the, uh, some kind of wall, and they don't want to do it. I had uh, a young woman say the other day in class after we had read, I can't remember what piece of fiction by, by Mary Gateskill, who I think owes a lot to you, um, that one of the Good things... Writer. Yeah, terrific writer. And, but one of the things that this young woman feared most, she said, God, I'd hate to be with a guy who, who wasn't smarter than I was. And... <laughs> I hardly knew what to say. So, um, so there, you know, there, there's a lot of work still to be done with this generation that's coming of age now. Well, you know, in some ways, my you know, daughter we, is one of them. Yeah. I we, mean, my my daughter would say, "You can't have it all when you're having children." But, you know, one of the things is women's lives are very long, longer mm-hmm. than men's, and childbearing and rearing is only perhaps a third. Of our life, even though the kids never go away, and you're always responsible, and you never detach, and you love them so much, but it's only a fraction of your life. And what are you going to do with the rest of it? And I think that's very hopeful. Also, I think we are starting to recruit male feminists. All those crazy things that came from the second wave, like not letting men in meetings and being very anti-male and all that, that's gone. And what we now have, and I do see green shoots of hope, men are allowed to admit that they're passionate fathers. The systems of our economy do not give them the freedom they need but they're allowed to admit in ways that my father and grandfather were not, that they adore their kids, mm. that they want to be involved in their kids' lives. Now all we need to do is get the corporations and the government to catch up, as they have in other democracies, to give men and women parental leave that's sufficient, to give early childhood education that's sufficient. 
the USA is way behind other democracies in this area. And unless you work for a company that is incredibly enlightened, and there are a few, but they are a minority, you cannot allow your parenthood full reign. So you, the, the young women who think you have to choose are not understanding that America is way behind Holland, France, the UK, not to mention the Scandinavian countries, in allowing parental leave, in, a, in having creches for kids, early childhood education. We are so far behind politically that that causes so much pain for parents. But you know, it, it, that's it, one of the problems. It, it even that feels, is the problem, by well, the way. Well, I, I wonder about that. Even reading Isadora now, she's asking a lot of questions about what it means to grow up. You know, what what would it mean to be grown up? Am I grown up the way I'm living right now, or is there some other kind of growing up that I either do or don't want to do? And I'm not sure all of those questions have political or governmental answers, too. Some of those questions are really basic and existential about what does it mean to to have grown up. Yes and no. Because children, we children are the riches of our world. And if we give them not what they need, we are blighting our world. I mean, children are not just these little accessories for fashionable women. Children are our future. And if we don't take care of them, in other words, have parents who can attend to them, have parents who can find childcare. The USA is so far behind other countries that it's embarrassing. Um, in, and that in, comes out of politics and the, the captivity of the majority by a crazed minority, you know, which uh, is currently shutting down the federal government. Right. Um, Lucy Ferris, in 60 yeah. seconds, because I really do have yeah. to go out to a... a, a, a I mean, I, the, the, the girls that you teach right now, the young women that you teach right now, um, how much would this resonate with them and how much of their concern is, is more just sort of about what it means to grow up as a person, whether or not the government helps you or not? Well, again, I, I, they are in many ways the way I was around the time I was reading Fear of Flying, where I thought, you know, I would never have to hit this woman's problems because I'm going to be able to do everything I want. But I do think this question of desire, of I want, I want, I want, is a question that they're refusing to ask themselves. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is the, is the dangerous part of the backlash among young women. All right. That's Lucy Ferris, her most recent book, The Lost Daughter. Erica Jong is with us. 40th anniversary of Fear of Flying. We will take a quick break, a, little, a very short break for a little bit of fundraising. We're going to be back. Erica Jong's going to be in Westport at the Public Library on Wednesday. Erica Jong has written... All right, now my zipper is jammed. I hate when that happens. I'm unzipless. Today's show was produced by Patrick Scahill, Betsy Kaplan, and me, with help from our interns, Garrett Connolly and Albert Gordon. The part of Bill Curry was played by Henry Miller. On tomorrow's show, the troubling side of college football. And now, 
back to Colin. And we're back with uh, Erica Jong, who's joining us from the studios of WNPR New York. Lucy Ferris, um, author of uh, many books, including most recently The Lost Daughter, is joining me uh, in studio. She's writer in residence at Trinity College. Uh, Fear of Flying is 40 years old. And, you know, Erica Jong, um, you know, I was saying at the beginning of the show that reading the book, in some ways, it doesn't feel that um, permanently located in 1973. In so many ways, um, Isadora Wing's concerns and hungers and appetites and and, and unmet needs are are pretty relevant and fresh today. But and I was trying to think of things that have changed and, and people who were impossible to imagine in 1973. And I think one of them really is, and I want to hear from both of you about this, one of them is Hillary Clinton in a way, that in 1973 you just you could be Hillary Clinton, but you'd be at Yale Law School, uh, and, and you wouldn't have gone through all these incredible things, things any one of which might define you, you know, define you permanently. Being first lady could define you permanently. Then being first lady who's betrayed so publicly by her husband could define you permanently. And then being a U.S. senator and then being secretary of state and then in the middle of all that being uh, a pretty strong con- candidate for uh, for president. It all seems like this fabulous novel, which if you wrote it in 1973, mm-hmm. nobody would believe. So Erica Jong, well, how does Hillary Clinton look to you? I adore Hillary Clinton, but do you notice she is not president? Barack Obama is. And that is not something that happened in the election. It happened in the primary. And as Gloria Steinem said, when Hillary was running against Barack Obama, we will elect a black man before we elect a woman. Just as black men got the vote before women got the vote, which was as recently as 1920 in America. Not so in New Zealand. They were much earlier than we were. But I will say that it's easy to point to the exceptions and say that women are getting ahead. But my daughter, who is now 35, said, Mom, you've got to vote for Barack. I mean, and I said, he's a beginner. He's a wonderful beginner, but Hillary has the experience. And about a month ago, my daughter came to me and said, you were right about Hillary and Barack. He wasn't as seasoned as she was. Okay, so you see the example. Gloria wrote about it when they were running against each other. It is much easier really, to elect a black man than a white woman. Why? And now we've seen this incredible racism against Barack Obama. We thought we were post-racial. There are people who have been trying to bring him down because of his color ever since he became president. So it is not a pretty story what's going on now. Um, The racism that has exhibited itself against his presidency will be written about by future historians with amazement. What's happening now with the shutdown of the government is part of that racism. I would not pick out the exceptions and say we've had great change. We have a tiny minority of women senators, more than we've ever had before, Um, and women representatives, and they are remarkable women. We have three women on the Supreme Court now out of 12, okay, 12 um, Supreme Court justices. I had expected we would be much, much 
further along. Well, the other you, the other thing you notice is that the field isn't very deep. Um, there aren't a lot of women waiting behind Hillary to run for president. Um, there aren't a lot of black men waiting behind Barack. In fact, I'd say that, but I'd say there are still fewer women waiting behind Hillary. They saw what she went through. Um, they are. You have to you have to look pretty long and hard before you find a depth of field. Until you have that, then I'm not sure how much progress you've made. Well, though, if Elizabeth That's Warren wants really to run, she's got my vote. Yes, well, there's Elizabeth Warren. So there's one more um, who is also in their later 60s. One of the things that's interesting to me, I went to uh, see um, James Taylor and Carol King perform at Tanglewood summer before last. And um, concert, yeah, it was. And but what really amazed me is how she blew him out of the water. Mm. Um, and she got up from the piano and took the mic and was walking around the stage singing, "You make me feel like a natural woman." And I thought she's just done for menopausal women what <laughs> she did for us when we were in our twenties. But she's it is amazing. It, I saw that show at at Madison Square Garden, and it just blew me away. Yeah, no, phenomenal. What a force of nature, Carol King is. Yeah, but in her late sixties, as is Hillary, as soon will be Elizabeth Warren. You know, you are actually talking about people who went through the feminist wave of the sixties and seventies. This is one of the scary things to me. Where are the women in their 40s, the 50s? A, a great question. Um, before we run out of time, uh, Erica John, you, you referenced a movie. You talked about a director. What can you tell us about uh, Fear of Flying, the movie? Well, there's a wonderful script that's been written by Piers Ashworth, um, who is a, a British writer, very witty, very clever. I had input into the script. We have a wonderful director, Laurie Collier, who won a big award at um, Tribeca this year. And you can see her most recent movie, the one she won the award for, streaming on video on demand right now. It's called Sunlight Junior, and it's an amazing movie. We're in the process of casting right now, and we will see. I I really, you know, show business being as parlous as it is, I can tell you nothing. <laughs> but I, we have wonderful people involved in this movie. I know you won't say the name, but do you, do you have somebody who's sort of your dream person right now, uh, an appropriately aged Isadora among the field of actors? There actor, are so actress. many wonderful actresses now who could play the role. And it's really a question of availability. Um, the mo you know, it's really a question. The casting directors go out with a wish list, and then they have to find out if the people are available. And I really cannot talk about that. Oh no, no. I wouldn't talk about it anyway because it would jinx it. Yeah, we could talk about it though. Yes, we can. I was gonna. Uh, it'd be fascinating to see the screenplay because I think of the book as being so much about uh, Isadora's voice, um, and so much about. Word wordplay. I mean, I just think about. I can't remember the names of all the uh, shrinks on the plane, but you know, there's somebody named Doctor Shrift who is conveniently short. Um, you <laughs> know, a, 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 and uh, a, and and so so a lot of it is about language, and a lot of it is about her voice. So so it must take a very very good screenwriter to be able to dramatize that on the screen. Well, 
in this current screenplay, Isidore does speak to camera um, and in a very funny way. Uh-huh. And she is constantly commenting on what's going on. She would have to. And, yeah. and we, have, we have used that effect that was used so beautifully in Tom Jones, if you remember. Yeah. Um, that wonderful movie that was made of Tom Jones yeah. probably 30 years ago. But she is always turning to the audience, and her language is part of the script. So That's great. Scripts so you are can change. <laughs> so we are talking about language <laughs> mm-hmm. in the in the script. Who's that? Was David Warner Tom Jones? I'm trying to remember who played Tom Jones. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> I'm writing down Albert Finney Albert when he was young. Albert Finney, oh, that's right. Um, I'm writing down. Rem- I'm writing down Numi Rapace. That's uh, my pick for uh, Isadora Wing. She's already tackled one, you know, sort of major literary figure, Elizabeth Salander. She is. She is amazing. She may not be and Central Park enough to do this, but we'll, we'll, we'll find out. <laughs> hey, also before we run out of time, I know that you have in the works um, something called Fear of Dying, or at least tentatively titled Fear of Dying. Um, is, is Isadora coming back in that, or is it a very different kind of novel? It's very hard to write about Isadora because she has so much baggage. Mm-hmm. I've written three books about her, and perhaps she will come back eventually, but this current book, she is not coming back. However, I have a new heroine who is called Vanessa Wonderman, (laughs) and she is phenomenal, and she is really funny, and she has married a much older man in her fifth or sixth marriage. She's an actress who's reached that age where you can't get parts, and which they do even now. I mean, the age is older, but... I have so many friends who are actors, and they get better and better at their craft, and the parts vanish. And um, it's very, very difficult for them. And it's earlier anyway, for women. It's much it's- earlier for women. And um, I have a dear friend, Shirley Knight, who is a great, great actress. And we keep trying to get her to play Lear. <laughs> um, <laughs> she would be phenomenal. But it's always a question of getting the financing. And so, she wouldn't play Queen Lear. She'd play King Lear, but as a woman. Um, Julie Taymor did a fabulous Tempest. Right, with Eric, uh, with um, Helen Mirren. Yeah. With Helen Mirren playing Prospera. And it can be done. And Prospera was phenomenal. Helen Mirren was phenomenal in Julie's film. So, but it's always hard to get the financing for things that are not comic book franchises. So, is fear, is fear of dying kind of a double entendre? Is it about fear of regular old dying and also kind of dying on stage, dying the way comedians talk about dying? Well, there's a metaphor. <laughs> you got it. I mean, it, the, the book is tentatively called Happily Married Woman or Fear of Dying. Uh-huh. And, uh, it's it's very funny. It's about the dance of sex and death, I guess. Well, that is, uh, uh, Lucy Ferris, we're going to run out of time pretty quickly, but it is sort of the irony that you get through all these other changes uh, as a woman and all these other challenges, and then you hit your late 50s or so, and it's kind of, well, what's that pain in my arm or something? <laughs> well, certainly, especially for women who have such clearly marked biological stages of life, mm-hmm. right? You know, I mean, you know, we have menarche, we have menopause, you know, and death. So that so that the stages of life are are marked very much by what happens to your body. 
You can tell just by women's magazines. You know, you start with seven. It's like the seven ages of man. You start with 17 and Marie Claire and, and like magazine by magazine by magazine, you approach uh, the the end of your life. Um, so, Erica Jong, maybe just sort of a final word here. I mean, as as you're celebrating this 40th anniversary and people are sort of coming to you, a la Lucy Ferris, with their stories of what the book meant. Are you are you surprised by what the book meant? Are you are are, are you surprised to see it maybe defined or understood in a certain way as opposed to in another way. It's been better understood, but I I have to say that in the 40 years since Fear of Flying was published, I have gone all over the world in its wake. And the one thing that has amazed me the most is that women have the same problems everywhere. I mean, you can go to Croatia or China all places where the book has been beloved, or Turkey, or let's say Israel, because it's not published in the Arab countries, and you will hear women say the same things to you. We need control over our own bodies. We need men to understand the complexities of our lives. We need men to be involved more with children. And you think these cultures are so different and women talk about the same things. I have been in Tokyo and had Japanese women come up to me and say, I am Isadora Wing. <laughs> I have been in Turkey and heard the same thing. So if we could ever get all these women together to demand a world that was sensitive to our needs, we could have the biggest revolution ever made. And men know that. And that is why they want us barefoot and pregnant. <laughs> but happily, happily, we have many male feminists now, and we will recruit them because their lives are better. Every UN report on the status of women has shown for the last 30 years that when you give women education and birth control, the whole society prospers economically. And okay. another thing happens. Erica Jong, I, I, I don't want to be the person who silences Erica Jong, but if I don't go to a break right now, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. So great to visit with you and with Lucy Ferris. We'll be back I'm tomorrow. I'm Wolf. My zipper I'm still stuck. How about next time we consider a Velcro list?